Dear Lord, uh, we acknowledge your name is hallowed, Father. Your name is above all names. Uh, we acknowledge, Father, your kingdom will come to this earth, even as it come to our hearts, that we know there is a time that has been appointed for that return, for your coming and for the kingdom that follows, and we look forward to it, Father. Uh, Father, we know that we are part of this family by your grace. You have saved us each, Father, in our own day because of a confession of faith that you gave us in the Son who died for us. And we ask, Father, you give us a heart to know that uh, just as you saved us, there is others who in sin against us are as equally deserving um, of our mercy and grace because of what you did for us, Father. We ask you to remind us of that whenever we feel those who would come against us as we did against you before we knew you. And, Father, we, we know you provide. We know that you are there for us at all times and all our needs, even if our needs sometimes are simply wants. You're delighted to, you delight to give us even more than we need sometimes, Father. And we thank you for that. And in the room, there were many needs tonight. I pray, Father, your work would be evident in what comes of each of these requests. And, Father, your word is ultimately the thing that binds us together. By, word, by the word of Christ, Father, we came to know you. By the word of Christ, we're being washed, made clean, sanctified for our groom on the day we see him. And by your word, Father, all will come to pass just as you have promised. And we glory in that. We thank you for that. We take all of these things to heart as we return to your word tonight, Father, because it is important for us to remember, Father, it's not about this study, this night, this topic, this chapter. It's about a relationship that we endeavor to have with you through your word that you make possible and that you cultivate and that we desperately need. Thank you, Father, for that gift. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Back into the story of Jonathan and David. Jonathan and David are now allies. They're allied against Jonathan's father, Saul the king. They are joined by two covenants. I'd like to review those briefly from last week because they come back to the discussion today in the chapters today. The first covenant that bound these two was the one in which Jonathan pledged unilaterally to give his throne to David. He made that promise unconditionally. And as you remember back perhaps a few chapters before, he did this because he recognized that David was the Lord's anointed, which tells us something. It tells us Jonathan was a man who recognized and respected the movement of the Lord. As he saw the Lord moving, he realized it was not to be his that he'd inherit the throne. He realized it was to be David's throne, despite what men would have expected. And he acknowledged that the Lord moved in Jonathan's heart to cause him to want to enter into this covenant in which he gave up everything for David. And in doing so, he ensured that David would have a legal right within Israel to receive the throne because it had been legally given to him. Something similar to what we saw with Esau and Jacob in that the birthright had been sold here. The right of the throne had been voluntarily turned over. That's the first covenant. Then last week, we saw the second covenant. Jonathan and David jointly entered into a parity covenant. Two people, each making promises to the other, conditional on performance. In this covenant, each man essentially agreed to protect each other. Jonathan agreed to protect David from his father Saul. David agreed to protect Jonathan's descendants after David takes the throne. Because Jonathan knew that David would have to destroy his enemies to consolidate his power. That was going to be a given for any king to come to power, particularly if there's a change in dynasty like this. Nevertheless, he did not want David to count Jonathan's descendants among his enemies. 
Now, the Lord's purpose in these covenants is twofold, and that's where we start to move into the teaching tonight. First, he's providing to David a man in Jonathan who would blunt Saul's attack and ensure David's survival during this period of time in which David's going to be seasoned. He's going to be tested and tried, and Saul will be the protagonist for that effort. Secondly, he creates, the Lord creates this vivid picture in David's life of Christ at his second coming. And by that I mean all who are in covenant with the Lord have the right to dine at the king's table just as Jonathan's descendant, Mephibosheth, does as we studied last week. So in the second covenant, there's both the purpose of ensuring David's safety. There's also this opportunity to reflect the picture of Christ that we know David gives us. Now we're going to return to the story. And we go back to the point in the story where Jonathan and David have agreed to this covenant, the second covenant, and they're now about to enact the plan. We stop midway into that moment. It's in chapter 20, verse 24. And so we read from there. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as usual, the seat by the wall. Then Jonathan rose up, and Abner sat down by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day, for he thought, it is an accident. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. It came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan then answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. For he said, Please let me go, since our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now if I have found favor in your sight, please let me get away, that I may see my brothers. For this reason he has not come to the king's table. David was in a field last week. This was the, the hiding place that Jonathan specified for David. And the reason he's hiding, of course, is because Saul's trying to kill him, and so is anyone else who's looking to please the king. And they come to this field so that Jonathan and David can enter into this covenant, in which Jonathan's going to protect David, help him get out of town. But first, I need to understand, does Saul truly have an intention to kill David, or is he just a little crazy at times and has trouble controlling his temper? Because that would be the only other explanation that you might have had for what he's done so far, throwing spears at David and all. So they hidden it. They went to the field. They made the covenant. And the plan was, as you might remember, that Jonathan goes to the table without David, tells this lie of why David's not there. And then depending on Saul's reaction, we all get a chance to find out, does Saul really care that much to kill David or not? And the lie was the one that you see Jonathan giving here. We'll, we'll look more at that here in a moment. But at this point, verse 24, they begin to act out on the plan. And the first part of the plan was for Jonathan to go to the new moon feast without David. Around the king's table, as it was described, you have honored guests. And each guest at the king's table, especially for a meal of this sort, had assigned seating. We see that Saul, it says, sat in the most honored place at the head of the table against the wall. Remember, people in this age did not sit on chairs, and it's probably very easy for us to imagine a table like King Arthur's court. That's centuries later, millennia later. You need to imagine people laying like they might do today in India, on the floor, reclining on cushions, laying with their elbow down like this to support their body, their right hand free to eat. And when you lay that way at a table, there's got to be room for your feet and your body behind you, so they would fan out around the table this way. Saul's left side, as it says here, was against the wall, which means he's positioned at the far left side of this table. Everyone moves out from the right, and that puts him at the most honored position. That's why it says he's in his normal position against the wall. Being against the wall means being in the most honored position. Abner was the next, so that would tell us he was the next most honored down the row. 
the point in this is David had an assigned seat. And when you have an assigned seat and you don't show up, people know you're missing the dinner. And that's really the emphasis here, is that there was obviously someone who should have been there who wasn't. That's David, of course, and his absence is immediately noticeable. But Saul doesn't say anything on the first night. Instead, he just thinks to himself, surely this is explainable as David just being unclean, meaning that he has somehow broached some ritual uncleanliness, come into contact with a dead body, something else, and that has left him unable to attend the table until he could be made ritually clean again. It's clear by what he's thinking, though, that he's hoping that he'll see David the next day. What he's hoping is not true is that David is intentionally staying away, for that's his fear. The next day, David isn't there. Now, you might ask yourself at this point, why would there be two days to a feast that celebrates the new moon? Because the new moon would be a day, not two days. Well, new months were timed by lunar events, obviously, like this one. And the precise moment of a lunar event can be hard to detect, especially if it occurs in the daylight hours. So feasts that centered on the start of a new moon were often two-day events to ensure that the exact moment would be captured somewhere in that 48-hour period. So it was the Jewish way of being sure that you got the new moon somewhere in that period. And who's going to argue against the second day of feasting anyway? So on the second day, Saul knows David's staying away because he doesn't want to be here. And that enrages him. It would indicate he is seeing his plan to kill David foiled. So in other words, his heart is being reflected in his anger. It's clear what he's all about. We knew that. He asked Jonathan, so where is David? He knew enough to know who to ask. In verse 27, he refers to David as the son of Jesse rather than by his name. That's a mild insult of David, showing Saul's contempt for him. And then Jonathan tells the lie that he and David prepared. Now, this is the second time a member of Saul's family has lied to their father to protect David. Michal did it first, now Jonathan. And I know we can agree that a lie is always sin, and it is. But then we must also say that these lies, both McCall's and Jonathan's, are the product of Saul's own sin. Saul, the father in the family, is acting unreasonably and rashly in sinning against the Lord's anointed, David. And his sin is leading his children to sin in response as an attempt to right the father's wrong for David's sake. So say what you will about McCall and Jonathan's choice to lie, but it would never have happened had Saul done the right thing in the first place. The whole concept of the father contributing to the sin of a child is at the core of Paul's admonition that fathers not exasperate their children. In Colossians 3.21, he says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not, quote, lose heart. And in Ephesians 6.4, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The Greek word for exasperate means to stir them up to anger. So literally he's saying the same thing in two different places concerning how fathers treat their children. So in both verses, Paul was advising fathers, don't drive your children into rebellious anger. Now that doesn't exonerate the sin of the child. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is, if you push somebody hard enough, sooner or later they'll be in a position where the flesh gets the better of them. And while they aren't exonerated, you're not free of guilt either. A father exasperating a child is sin, even as the child himself or herself sins. So what drives a child to become exasperated? Strict rules? Stern discipline? No, not if applied consistently and fairly in love. Children generally grow up respecting that kind of treatment. But Paul says children grow angry and resentful 
when they receive unfair, unloving treatment. They become exasperated by parents who set hypocritical examples, demanding perfection while sinning themselves, or who receive unnecessary harsh penalties for common mistakes. That all fits, I think, under the umbrella of someone who provokes a child, is exasperating them, forcing them to feel as though they have no hope to escape except to break out of the bonds of the parent, which is going to lead to sin. That's what you see with Saul now among adult children. Yes, not four-year-olds, granted. But still, Saul is bringing his children into anger, a kind of righteous anger, but in the process leading them to rebel to protect the innocent. And that rebellious behavior, lying in this case, is not excused in the text of Scripture. But it's also evident by the context of what's happening here that these two kids are doing their best to protect someone who deserves their protection, even if their methods aren't always appropriate. No childhood rebellion is good. Or right, of course. But in some cases, that rebellion is the product of parenting choices. And we need to be conscious of that. I think it's fair to conclude that Saul's children were backed into this corner by their father. Now look at Saul's response to Jonathan's answer. Verse 30. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. This is kind of the height of that conversation I just had a moment ago where the son is led into this kind of behavior out of a father who's unreasonable. This is sort of the poster child example of that, obviously. But it starts with Saul listening to Jonathan's explanation, but not being convinced by it. That's interesting, isn't it? The story, I think, was too perfect. As I hear Jonathan delivering it, I doubt Jonathan was a particularly good liar. And so I'm guessing that as he gave the whole story, Saul's eyes just rolled into the back of his head. He knew exactly what the plan was. There was never a moment here where he seems to have been fooled. And so he erupts at Jonathan. He calls Jonathan the son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Back then, as now, it was a low blow to refer to a person's mother in the process of trying to insult them. He's invoking the name of his mother to attack Jonathan. In fact, the translation of these words varies significantly depending on the translation that you're using. Today's English version Bible translates it, you bastard, because that's a very literal translation of what's being said here, you know, an illegitimate child. But the point is, that's how strong this language was in its original Hebrew. Then Saul says, Jonathan's friendship with David was to Jonathan's shame, because it results in Jonathan losing the throne if David succeeds in gaining it. An heir who does not receive what he is due is shamed, in other words. But of course, that inheritance was promised to David, not to Jonathan. So the truth of the matter is very different from what Saul perceives. But nonetheless, that's his perspective. And then he says it's also to the shame of his mother's nakedness. Now, if that one throws you off a bit, here's why. He's referring to the moment of birth when a woman is exposed like no other time in her life, at least in that culture, certainly. Even the act of conception was often less exposing to a woman in that culture than birth was because they would typically be very reserved even in that moment, in the dark, in the tent. There was not necessarily a lot of exposure for a woman because it was seen as such a tremendous dishonor. So the shame of nakedness was a phrase that referred to childbirth moment. 
And that shame of nakedness was, in Saul's mind, wasted if Jonathan's life did not amount to becoming all that he could have become. So Saul is being the ultimate hypocrite here in defending the honor of Jonathan's mother, having just insulted her a few moments earlier. All of this strong language is an indication of the deteriorating nature of Saul's heart. Saul sees Jonathan as a traitor to his own family. He knows Jonathan is David's closest friend, so he assumes Jonathan is hiding David, and he's right. And he is incensed at the thought that Jonathan would trade the family and the name and the throne for this other man. He says that if David lives, Jonathan won't have the throne. Now, that phrase in and of itself reveals everything you need to know about Saul's heart. He's saying that David is anointed by God. He's been told that. He knows that. Samuel told him that. And yet he's saying that needs to be stopped. So his goal, his one goal on his mind, is that he and his family hold on to the throne. He wants this despite knowing the Lord wants something else and that it's already been taken away from him. He wants it so badly, he even wants to force his children to keep that promise from coming true in the case of Jonathan. He's not interested in obeying the Lord's will. But, of course, that's his folly, right? Because God's will can't be frustrated. Saul is guaranteed to lose his fight. But he's not thinking in rational terms. He's not thinking with the will of God. And, he, therefore, he's resisting the will of God. What did we say about Jonathan a few minutes ago? Jonathan, in his covenant, was willing to sacrifice his interest for the sake of David's for the main reason that he saw God's hand on David after he defeated Goliath. So here's a son who says, if that's what God wants, then that's what I want, even at the expense of my own best interests. What Saul says is, that's what God wants? Well, I don't care, because I'm going to get what I want. There's this polar opposite between these two, and it's being reflected in the text, in the story. And so Saul demands Jonathan present David to him, so that David could be put to death, so that it would ensure Jonathan's inheritance. And, of course, Jonathan refuses. But this is what he was waiting to find out, right? The fact that Saul is so calculating about this proves that the prior experiences in which spears were thrown and orders were given to kill David were not just heated moments, if you could even excuse it at that. There's a calculation to it, which means it's never going to stop. So Jonathan asks why the innocent has to die, and Saul, in his anger, throws a spear at Jonathan, missing him, thankfully, and creates this irony that Saul told Jonathan David would prevent him from receiving the throne, but it was Saul who almost brought about that very end for Jonathan by his own murderous heart. So similar to what he just did with his mother. Today, in psychology, we might hear people talk about it being schizophrenia, but biblically we're talking about the duality of the heart. You're seeing here the nature of this heart fractured, in which you can do contradictory things a minute apart from one another because the two sides of this man are at war within them, the civil war, and the flesh is clearly winning at every moment. And so he's moving between these two, and he's saying things that are inconsistent, contradictory, and doesn't see it even for himself. This moment makes clear who the real threat to David and Jonathan is. It's Saul. And with that, Jonathan now knows that he cannot change his father's heart and that his father is determined to, take, to kill David. And so he leaves the table, says here, without eating on the whole day, in disgust of his father's treatment of the Lord's anointed. And you have to see in this a man's heart. His desire was that God's plan would succeed. He's directed at ensuring it. He's committed to ensuring it. He wanted what God's heart wanted, and he wanted it to win out so much that he was willing not only to sacrifice the throne, now he's sacrificing his relationship with his father. That's the heart of someone who loves the Lord. They want what God wants. Then in a tender scene that follows, Jonathan fulfills his covenant promise to David in verse 35. Now it came about in the morning 
that Jonathan went out into the field for the appointment with David, and a little lad was with him. He said to his lad, Run, find now the arrows which I'm about to shoot. As the lad was running, he shot an arrow past him. When the lad reached the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the lad, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. And Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow and came to his master. But the lad was not aware of anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said to him, Go, bring them to the city. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the more. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. So David spent, if you count back now, he spent a couple nights in the field waiting for Jonathan to return. When he does come back, they execute the warning plan just as they had agreed, right? The whole arrow thing, if I shot it one way, if I shoot it a different way. And as you see, he shoots the arrows over David and then calls for the boy to go further in retrieving them just to make clear to David that's where he had sent them. Uh, The boy here is, in the Hebrew, the term for this little lad is a reference to a very small child. So we're talking about five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, somebody young enough that they're not going to be suspicious by anything that's going on or know know better to ask any questions. They're just going to do what they're told. And that's who you have here. Eventually, Jonathan sends the boy away so that he has a chance to say goodbye to David. Remember, the original plan had been that if the arrow goes in the far distance, David's just told to go. So it appears as though Jonathan decided to find a way for a face-to-face goodbye here, even though that wasn't necessarily the plan. David approaches, he falls to the ground, he gives Jonathan these three bows. Why do you think he does that? Well, because this is the king's son. He is still the rightful son of the king, the royal house. And David, in recognition of that, honors him the proper way. They kiss, they weep in recognition that this is the end of a friendship about to happen, at least in terms of the earthly side of it. Because Saul's determination to kill David has made it impossible for them to spend any time together anymore. This is going to be the last time they see each other alive. And so, as the last thing they do, they repeat the covenant vows. A kind of, now remember, you're going to take care of my family. Uh, Jonathan reminding David. So what Jonathan has chosen to do here is favor his supposed enemy, David, over his father. And did so in confidence that it would work out to his benefit because he he was in covenant with David. That covenant did away with the enmity between Jonathan and and David, and it created enmity between Jonathan and Saul. So in a sense, Jonathan becomes a picture of every believer, while David retains the picture of Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Reminding us that every unbeliever, including us before we came to know the Lord, were at one time, sons of disobedience. You couldn't come up with a better term to describe Jonathan in the sense that he is the son of disobedience personified in his father Saul. Like every unbeliever, Jonathan was initially part of a household that was an enemy of God's anointed. Then James 4 says this, verse 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But after entering into a covenant, Jonathan became an enemy of the former master, that is to say his father, and a friend to this new king. 
Just as when we turn our backs on the world, we do so in order to enter into a covenant with Christ. John says in 1 John 5, 5, Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And then after that, we have a lifelong friendship with this new king, but at the sacrifice of a, of a connection to the world, a friendship with the world. As I said, this is the last time these two see each other alive. But as we saw last week, David keeps his promise in the end to Jonathan's household, but he does so with Mephibosheth after he takes power. Now, where we stand at this point in the book of 1 Samuel is over the next ten chapters, David is in flight from Saul. He will grow increasingly stronger in his flight as he matures through all the trials and testing that he endures. He'll mature in leaps and bounds, you'll see as we go through the story. His tactics of survival will change. He'll go from relying on deception to dependence on the Lord. Meanwhile, during the same period of time, Saul is growing weaker and weaker. His paranoia grows, his mental state deteriorates. Eventually, he's consulting the occult for help against David. So as David depends more and more on the Lord, Saul moves to making appeals to the enemy, to Satan. Here again, David pictures Christ's willingness to suffer deprivation before he ascends to his throne. He was willing to wait for the Father to promote him into a promised position. He wasn't willing to seek it before its appointed time. And meanwhile, the enemy grows increasingly paranoid in his attempts to stop something that is inevitable. We go now into chapter 21, the beginning of his flight. I think the thing to understand as you look at him in chapter 21 is to take note of the immaturity of David in the way he seeks to protect himself now because later it will be useful as a reference point as we see where he comes in the future. We'll see a change from where he begins here. Verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you here alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, There's no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I sent out and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. This is happening in a place called Nob. Now, Nob is a town that would have sat on the present-day Mount Scopus. So it's a couple, three miles from Jerusalem from the heart of the old city. And at the time, of course, you have to remember, there is no Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a Jebusite city. There's no Temple Mount. None of that's existing. Israel doesn't have possession of it. So Nob is just a little town in this region. And it's the, it's the place where the priests congregated. That's where they were living at the time. We must assume, therefore, that the tabernacle was probably in that same vicinity. It moved around from time to time. It didn't stay in one place necessarily all the time. So the tabernacle, the tent structure that Moses was given to build, is in this area as well. And the high priest there is Ahimelech. And as Saul's general, David is a man to be feared by anyone in the kingdom. So at the sight of David approaching alone, the priest Ahimelech starts to wonder if maybe David's on some kind of mission to come and get him, or to come and kill him, or do something wrong. It doesn't make sense. And so he trembles at the sight of David approaching by himself. 
It's also true, though, that David has begun to collect a few men at this point, and the text indicates that. So even though these men aren't visible here, it's evident by how David speaks and about how Elimelech speaks that he can tell there's some guys waiting around the corner, down the hill, somewhere nearby. Eventually, David calms him down, and he tells the priest the lie that you see represented here, the lie that Saul has sent him on a secret mission. So now here again, at the outset of David's flight, you see him demonstrating spiritual immaturity here. David is evidently of the mind that he must bend the rules in order to ensure the outcome that he wants, forgetting that God can move mountains. That if it is in God's will that he be in this set of circumstances, then he doesn't need to contrive these means to save himself. He could have been completely honest at all points along this path, and God would have found the way necessary to preserve him, because God has anointed him. I mean, he'd be essentially saying, I don't believe God can bring about my own rise into the throne unless I'm helping God along the way with these lies. If he obeyed the Lord, and if he had trusted the Lord to respond properly, no doubt, great things would have happened. But it's David's heart and God's knowledge of his heart at this stage of his life that's led to God bringing the 10 years that are about to come upon David. So in a way, chapter 21 is the validation for you and I to understand why the next 10 years had to happen. And I'm not saying that it's punishment, quite the opposite. It's schooling. It's instruction. It appears that David and his men must have been hiding for some time by the point of chapter 21, because they're quite hungry and he's in the need of food to such an extent that he's willing to go seeking it from the priests. Hungry enough to invent this ruse to get food. He asks for five loaves of bread. Now the priests reply, well, the only bread we have around here these days is the showbread or the bread of the presence. This is the bread that was placed in the tabernacle. In the law, the tabernacle had loaves of bread placed in the holy place once a week, every Sabbath. After that week, the old bread was removed and it was given to the priests as food to eat. And only the priests, according to the law, were supposed to eat this bread. But now David appears to Ahimelech and he asks for mercy to give him this food to sustain him in the work that he was doing in obedience to God. Now, ironically, he lies about the nature of the work. But apart from that detail, he is truthful in the bigger scheme of things, which is to say he needs this food to accomplish what he has been called to do. The priest stipulated to David, well, I guess I can break the rule. I guess we can give you some of this bread. But at least make sure these guys are ritually clean because I don't want to have sin by giving this bread to people who aren't qualified to eat it in that sense, right? Why were the priests willing to go against the law at all here? Why do you think Ahimelech was willing to break the law with regard to who could eat the bread at this point? And before you answer that, even more puzzling, in the Gospels, Jesus declares that the priest's action here was justified. In Matthew 12, chapter 12, verse 1, we read this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God? And they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? To understand what's going on in the moment of chapter 21, we have to begin by understanding what Jesus is saying about it. Jesus refers to this situation as a defense for what his disciples were doing when they were eating heads of grain on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus' situation is easier to understand to some degree than the one we see in chapter 21. First of all, in the case of the disciples, they were picking heads of grain 
to eat. And in the way the Pharisees had contrived their rules, they had defined that as a break in the Sabbath. Now, God never said it was. They did. And they did it on the basis that it was a mini version of what a farmer does when he works in the field. So a farmer would take a sickle and he'd hoe down the wheat and then he'd grab it in bundles and he'd walk it over to a place where it would be tread by oxen and then the treading would separate the wheat from the chaff and then they'd pick it all up and they'd throw it in the wind and the wind would carry the chaff away and you'd end up with just the grain. But on a micro level, you could do all of those same things with just your fingers. You could take one head of grain, you can separate the wheat from the chaff, you can let the chaff sort of blow or fall between your fingers as you hold on to the grain and when you're done, you have a grain, you eat it. And in purely literal terms, they are equivalent. It's just the only difference is, is quantity of effort. And for them, they said, to do that kind of little picking is considered against the Sabbath. You notice Jesus doesn't argue with that. And I'm not saying he endorses their methodology, but what I am saying is that would be quibbling. That wouldn't get to the heart of the matter. Whether you call that an extension of breaking the Sabbath or not, the real question is, can you break the Sabbath for any reason? And could this be one of those times when it's a legitimate thing to do? So to refute their reasoning, Jesus says, well, explain to me then how David could have been allowed to eat the showbread, which Jesus himself says in Matthew 12 was unlawful, meaning he's, he's reflecting the reality of what the law said, that the law didn't allow for this. And then he goes a step further, and in verse 5, as I read, he reminds the Pharisees that the priests had to work in the tabernacle to officiate in the ways that were prescribed, and they had to do that seven days a week. So even on the Sabbath day, priests had to go to work in the tabernacle, which would have been a violation of the Sabbath, but then Jesus goes on to say, but they were considered innocent in that work. What he's explaining is that obedience to the Lord is never sin. Obedience to the Lord, by definition, is never sin. When the priests served in the tabernacle, they were obeying what God had told them they must do, in which case it could not be sin. And yet, that obedience appeared to come into conflict with another law, a broader law, a more general law, concerning the Sabbath. But since all law comes from the lawgiver, and all law was given to men to reveal their unrighteousness, that is to say, it did not produce righteousness in the way you follow it. You were not more righteous because you did five of the laws than you were if you did two. You follow what I'm saying? All the difference was that you were exposed to a greater degree as being sinful in one case than in the other, but you were sinful in both cases. Right? Law doesn't make you righteous. It simply reveals your unrighteousness. So, when two laws from the same lawgiver are in opposition, the higher law prevails. And then what would make a law higher in that case? Well, in this case, the law to the priests for how a priest needs to behave trump a more general rule about how all of Israel is supposed to respect the Sabbath day so that the priest would respect the Sabbath day in all cases except when he was on duty inside the tabernacle. And it was understood that the lawgiver had made that exception by the very fact that those other laws existed as well. Right? God had made that as a need that would trump the Sabbath. And so you had to interpret God's law in light of the whole of the law, and not just in isolation, because then you could make lots of things contradict other things. Then you go to the heads of the grain. The law did not preclude eating, and these men were following the Lord, who he said later in, in Luke's Gospel, he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So his point here again is, if the conflict is between, I do not eat, in order to obey the Lord, or I obey the Lord, which means I'll have to eat along the way as we walk, then that trumps the Sabbath law, because the Lord is the Lord of both, and he was the one there with them, commanding them to walk and to go on, and they were eating as a function of that mission. So you had to take everything into consideration when you make a judgment about what is the right thing to do. Obeying God is never sin. 
Have you ever been in a company where people sit around in a company and say, we can't do that, the rules say we can't do it, and you forget, well, we made the rules. There are rules. When the rules don't fit the purpose, we change the rules so that we get the purpose. We're not slaves to our rules. And similarly, the law is from a lawgiver who had a purpose, and the Lord himself defines what righteousness is, and following him is righteousness. It takes law and puts it in the proper light. So always give preference to Jesus over the law given to men. Honoring the Lord is higher than honoring his Sabbath. So now you go back to David. Likewise, honoring the Lord's anointed, David, was a higher goal for this priest than honoring the showbread or honoring the law concerning how the bread was to be used. This is the difference between, again, honoring David, the living representative of God, the anointed, versus honoring a piece of bread which was meant to represent God's anointed. For some people, this is a real head-scratcher because I think we've been trained, particularly in, in some Christian families, to think that it is equivalent to follow the law to obey God. And to contradict that, to say that there could be a time when following the Lord will change what we do concerning what he wrote to Israel in that law, causes us to think that somehow that is leading us into unrighteousness. But the law itself, the very physical law itself given Israel, is not the definition of righteousness. Obedience to God is the definition of righteousness. That written law was given for purposes other than creating righteousness. You can follow it and still be unrighteous. In fact, you are. And you can leave it aside when God makes clear that that's what's needed to obey him, and you're not sinning when you're obeying God. All right, so now there is a foreboding verse here in chapter 21, verse 7, which actually sets up all of chapter 22. Verse 7, Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. Now that's all we hear about him here. And Samuel's including this reference to this spy, so that he can set up the events of chapter 22. This man must have been on an errand to Nob for the king or for some other reason. While he's there, he sees David arrive. Later, he's going to go back and report to Saul what he's seen. The fact that he's identified as an Edomite is intended to tell us that Saul has, in his employment, men who are not of Israel and are not pleasing to God. And this man later becomes a harsh lesson to David that he should have been trusting the Lord during this time instead of trying to work the plan himself, that by taking matters into his own hands, he creates a devastating outcome for Israel as a result of this decision. You'll see it next chapter. Verse 8, David says to Ahimelech, Now, is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it. For there is no other except it here. And David said, there is none other like it. Give it to me. So after spotting Doeg, David turns back to the king and asks for a weapon. I think because he realizes that with this spy, things are going to go from bad to worse. The priest says, oh, we have Goliath's sword. It's just stored over there. We use it to prop up this wall over here or something. And David remembers it, and he knows it's special, and he's willing to rely on it. So at the beginning of this flight, he relies on a lie. Now he intends to rely on weapons. Finally, he decides to rely on his enemy. In verse 10, David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Even the Philistines know he's been anointed king. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands, meaning ten thousand Philistines? 
David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman? Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madman that you have to bring this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? So David's next step. He decides, all right, I've, I've got to run further. And he decides to go to the Philistines, to the town of Gath. Remember, the Philistines occupied the coastal plains. They have five cities. This is one of them. Now, you might assume that David chose to go to the Philistine city because of the old adage, any enemy of my enemy is my friend. Maybe he's thinking, well, gee, Saul hates me now. Maybe these guys will take me in. Perhaps he thought he'll be embraced by them as fellow enemies of Saul. Or maybe he just thought he'd blend into Philistine society, right? Go to the big town, put the hood over his head, and just walk down the street. Well, apparently the Philistines haven't heard of this saying because they take one look at David in the city and they say, why is this guy here? Chuck Swindoll once remarked that David's attempt to be inconspicuous in Gath was kind of like Dolly Parton trying to blend in in a convent. And the people of Gath even repeat the famous song that David had sung to him on his amazing ability to kill Philistines, right? So this is probably the worst place he could have gone if he wanted to be both anonymous and protected. He realizes this too late. I mean, he's already there, but he figures it out. So now he worries for his life. And you have to know why, right? Because the Philistines would have assumed that the only reason he comes there is because he's either a spy preparing to attack them or the attack is already underway, or they've just gotten lucky and captured him when he took a wrong left turn, or they don't know what happened, but they think this is a prize, right? They've got the king of their enemies in their hands. And at that point, David decides he's going to have to do something, and so the -the spur-of-the-moment idea that he comes up with, of course, is he, he decides to act like an insane person, hoping they would take pity on him or lose interest in him or just not want to have anything to do with him. And so he adopts all this erratic behavior. I love this little moment here in Scripture because it's so specific, and it looks just like you'd expect it to be. I mean, it sounds just like people would do if they were in that same situation. It's just so authentic, isn't it? He adopts erratic behavior. He writes nonsense on the doors of the city gates. He drools on himself. Today, as I said, this kind of behavior might get you elected. But in that day, it was a useful defense against an attack. And the king assumes that the insane David has come to Gath, maybe because Saul decided to to thrust him onto the Philistines and make him a burden, somebody that had to be cared for. He says, don't I have enough of these people already? I need a new one. So he, he just says, let's ignore him. I don't want to have anything to do with him. Now, you know, at this point, the story seems to finish with a cute ending, at least in chapter 21. But think about what's happened. David has now made a fool of himself before the enemies of Israel. It saves his life, but it diminishes him, at least in a sense, right, to a degree. This is the second time David has used deception to save himself. Each time it's had a negative consequence for him. All in all, David has tried deception. He's got weapons. Now foolishness. And all of this is as a means of saving himself from Saul. And none of these apparently are a solution to his trouble. It just demonstrates his immaturity. He's about to embark on this 10-year journey of spiritual maturity. And he's very much an example to all believers in that regard. Because not that we all fight this kind of battle, obviously, but we all start somewhere in our walk of faith. I've said at times past when I've taught in Genesis, Abraham started as Abram. Israel started as Jacob. These men began as someone with limited abilities to hear and follow and trust in the Lord. Now, they trusted in the Lord, 
by faith. They were declared righteous by that faith. But nevertheless, they weren't accustomed to following him, especially in times of distress. And when distress came, they would fall back on the worst of their nature, on their old habits, their bad tendencies. Jacob was the, the sneaky thief. You know, he was the deceiver as well. Every time something happened in the land that caused Abraham to, to question whether he had enough provision, he'd run off to Egypt and say his wife was his sister. I mean, he had these things that were sort of the fallback go-to plan that we used to have, that we made up for ourselves and got comfortable with before we knew the Lord had the power to solve these problems without our need to do those things. They started somewhere, but God didn't leave them there. Each man experienced his own trials and testing as a result. Abraham? Abraham had to take Isaac up to the top of a mountain thinking he was going to kill his own son. Jacob wrestled with the Lord. David, he's going to spend ten years in the wilderness fleeing from Saul. Those experiences grow these men. In this particular case, David will grow to to be ready to assume leadership in the kingdom as a result of that testing. Remember that the times you experience those great pressures in your life that God may be bringing, those are the opportunities where we become more Christ-like. And when you discover yourself in those moments resorting to those less than faithful means to prevail in those circumstances, well, then you'll understand why the Lord felt you needed to go through that circumstance in the first place because self-evidently you're still bringing up stuff that needs to be dealt with. To understand that there's nothing in you that God needs except obedience. He doesn't need ideas and, and all the things we tend to, to fall back on. So when you trust in him entirely for your deliverance, well, then you will have passed that trial, that test. That's what we get to see with David. get to see David do that over the next few chapters. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you, Father, for tests and trials from men like Abraham and Jacob and David who have gone before us in that path. Men we aspire to be like, Father. But still, in their beginning, Father, men who, who may be very much like who we are, who uh, know you, who follow you, who desire to please you, but still, Father, when things get tough, we become the old man and, instead of living in the new. Father, I pray that you would bring us trial so that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But, Father, we also ask that you would be merciful that our tests and our trials, Father, would be no more than we can endure and perhaps even less than, than necessary, Father. So something that can achieve your good purpose, Father, without bringing us to that point of breaking. But, Father, whatever needs to happen, that's what needs to happen. For, Father, we desire to, to see the glory that comes from that trial more than we desire to be protected in our sin. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.